Hey ladies, my name is Sarah Stiles and I'm a part of the women's teaching team for Women in the Word. And it is an absolute delight to be with you to here, uh, here today. And I just want to say thank you, thank you for prioritizing God's Word in your life and uh, for your study of the Gospel of John. Um, we have a very special passage today, and so I'm glad you're joining us. Uh, I have the opportunity to interview potential seminary students who are interested in full-time ministry. And when we're interviewing them, we ask them the basic questions of, uh, what are some jobs you've had that you've thrived in? Uh, tell us about your family, or even uh, tell us about your favorite TV show, which can be quite enlightening uh, in the interview process. Uh, and we also ask them, why do you wanna be in full-time ministry? More times than not, they answer that last question by describing a mentor uh, or a pastor. The desire for full-time ministry came from the push of a man or a woman who believed in that young individual, invested in them, gave them opportunities to learn under them, and who loved them well. It took the example of someone else to then bring them to the interview where I would then meet them. Another question we asked the candidate is a, is a really fun one. Uh, if money were no object, relationships were no issue, and nothing was hindering you, what do you have to do in the next five to 10 years? Our goal in this question is to see what passions the Lord has put into that individual, and the deadline of five to 10 years removes any obstacles, narrowing their focus on their God-given desire for purposeful living. With the motivation of the mentor and the magnetic draw into that uh, God-given purpose, they're eager to take whatever step the Lord provides for them next. Starting seminary is exciting. Uh, you have no idea what you're about to get into. Uh, and in the thick of this semester, it's easy to want to quit, to back out. I was uh, talking with a friend recently who's in the throes of Greek, and he mentioned to me that he had the fleeting thought of quitting Greek. I understand. But then our conversation brought it back to why we do what we do. We stick through the training because we want to learn to love people better. Because we've experienced the love of the Lord, we're motivated to keep going in our studies. Uh, I reminded him that it's worth it, and I tried to encourage him to just take it sentence by sentence uh, in his translation from Greek to English. Uh, especially when life becomes hard, we're forced to rely on the Lord step by step. And I know for, for us, 2020 and 2021 have made it clear how much we have to live step by step. We've been confronted with the reality that we're not really in control. Uh, it's removed the illusion that we have control and planners can seem a bit of a joke right now, honestly. Uh, we've learned to be more flexible, especially uh, when snow decides to visit Texas for a week. Uh, as a Texan, I certainly didn't expect to see the snow we had in February, nor did I think I'd be wearing shorts and getting a sunburn the following week. Uh, these couple of years have been full of surprises and some good and some difficult, and they've slowed us down enough for us to think and considers, consider matters beyond the surface level, asking questions like, what should I be doing with my time? Who should I be investing in? And if I were to die, what do I wish I had done? Some of y'all might be asking these questions and others, uh, and I think they're questions we should consistently ask of ourselves and ask the Lord. 
So the scene we're entering into today is a somber one. It's one in which the disciples found themselves getting more and more anxious about what was going on, which prompted them to ask lots of questions. Today, we get to hear the last words of someone who knew he would be dying soon. Last words are precious words. They're chosen closely and given without reserve. And those in the presence of someone near death, listen attentively. Death is something that our culture pushes against. We don't like thinking about it, uh, but it's something we've had to confront more than ever lately. I'm gonna ask you to sit in the reality of it today so that we can ask one more question. How can we live with the end in mind? How can we live with the end in mind? But also take heart, Jesus uh, doesn't end this dinner without giving his friends comforting and exciting news, news that can still cheer us today in 2021. So I want you to open up to John 13, and we'll be looking at chapter 14. So two chapters today, it's gonna be fun. Um, we have the privilege today to be a fly on the wall to a private dinner party, an intimate last supper, uh, which would not have been a COVID-sized approved party. The Passover meal had 13 guests, the Son of God and his 12. And I love that we are talking about the passage this week because the timing is perfect with our celebration of the resurrection this Sunday. Um, this dinner happened the Thursday before Good Friday, uh, which was the night before he was killed. And knowing his end is near, Jesus steps towards the Father's will. Instead of fleeing Jerusalem, he stays. And as he invests his last hours into the 12 men who would become the start of the church, he tells them important words. And at this last supper, we see Jesus doing three things. We see him showing the disciple the desires that he has for them to serve. Uh, we see that he challenges them to love his way of loving others. And then he tells them the way of access to the Father. So showing them service, showing them the love that he desires from them, and then showing them the way to the Father. And from our dinner with them, we will be able to answer the question, how can we live with the end in mind? So it's almost time for Thursday night dinner, but it's not your normal Thursday night dinner. It was the day once a year that Passover lambs were killed. Jesus sends John and Peter, two of his disciples, ahead to prep for the yearly Passover meal. And then the rest of the crew arrives later and we enter into John's gospel uh, with a surprising act of service. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV, but feel free to follow along or just listen as the night unfolds. Look at verse one with me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the supper. He laid his garments aside and taking a towel, he wrapped it around his waist. What? would motivate the Messiah, Jesus, to do this. Love. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end, stripping down likely to just a loincloth with his linen cloth wrapped around him to dry the disciples' feet. He not only took the position of the slave, but he looked like one. Moving from foot to foot, dressed, even in the appearance of a slave, 
Jesus washed 24 feet, the feet of a former tax collector, the feet of four fishermen, even the dirty feet of those who would soon walk out to complete his act of betrayal against his master. Conversation around the table died down, and the men who reclined at this Passover meal watched their master do the unthinkable. And before you continue to put this picture together in your mind, I want you to take down the picture, the Da Vinci painting. Uh, and while that painting is quite exquisite in detail, it's not really an exact representation of the night. They weren't all sitting on the same side of the table. They weren't all sitting in chairs. In fact, they weren't even really sitting. They, during that time, people would recline, usually on their left elbow, and eat with their right hand, feet away from the table. Uh, and the table was likely a U-shaped Roman triclinium. Um, and Jesus uh, was sitting probably in the bottom of the U with two disciples on either side. And both of those positions would have been a position of honor. As the Creator knelt before each of these men, his truly sore knees eventually came before Peter. And Peter, who's never short of words, was not comfortable with what Jesus was doing. After all, Peter at this point knew and had confessed that he believed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now the Messiah was stooping to do the job of the lowest servant. Look at verse six. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. It's kind of like a parent saying, when you're older, you'll understand. As time passes, you'll get it. Jesus went on to patiently explain to Peter the symbolism that only those who have been cleaned can share with him or belong with him. One commentator explained this scene so well by saying that this washing isn't representing baptism, but instead the washing away of sins that will make the way for relationship. After he finished wiping the grime off of each foot, including his own, he resumed his place at the table and took a moment to explain what he had done. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. And then look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. One scholar said this about the dinner. Since the meeting was obviously intended to be secret, no servants were present. None of the disciples was ready to volunteer for such a task, for each would have considered it an admission of inferiority to all the others. Luke's gospel account of this night notes that that very night, the disciples had actually been arguing over who was the greatest and most worthy of high rank in Jesus's kingdom. And then we have the Son of God washing their feet. In all honesty, none of them were worthy enough to wash Jesus's feet. In fact, if you remember back at our study at the beginning in John 1:27, John the Baptist said that the Lamb of God, Jesus, is the one whose sandal straps he wasn't even worthy to untie. The Greek word for example here in verse 15 means pattern. Jesus was laying down a pattern for the disciples to follow, a pattern not of foot washing, but of humility and loving service. I'm sure the disciples were still reclining at the table a bit stunned as Jesus continued to speak after washing their feet. Look at verse 20 with me. 
truly, truly, which is one of Jesus's favorite phrases that we have heard. He's essentially branding what he's about to say as truth. Uh, truth, I say to you, whoever receives the one who sent, sorry, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In other words, those who accept and receive you welcome me, and whoever believes in me believes in the Father whom I came from. To be made clean spiritually, one would need to entrust his or herself to the truth and implications of Jesus Christ. And we'll find out more of what this means as the dinner continues. But before we enter the next course of dinner, uh, I want to pause a bit for us to understand why Jesus took the initiative to serve in this way. And this is super important. He, he knew where he was about to go. Yes, to the cross. But if you look back in verse 1, it points to a return to the Father as well. He knew he was about to leave his disciples on earth. And from the beginning of their time together, which was about three years prior to this dinner, Jesus had shown them love, and he would love them to the end. Love moved him from foot to foot. Love kept him in Jerusalem when he knew that that night the feet of Judas he was washing would soon leave the dinner only to come back to betray Jesus. Love was the motivation behind everything that Jesus did. And he wanted his disciples to follow his example. How can we serve with the end in mind? For followers of Jesus, the end is a couple, this end is a couple of things. It could be physical death, which immediately brings us to the presence of Jesus in heaven, or the rapture could happen. And the rapture is the event that will happen at any moment in which Jesus will call his church to meet him in the air to then spend the rest of eternity with him. Uh, and when I say church here, I'm talking big C, universal church, those who have died and those who live, who have believed in Jesus's death and resurrection. So in short, living with the end in mind for Christians means that we live each Monday morning, each Friday night, each day considering our mortality. When I say live with the end in mind, I'm not saying uh, eat, drink, and be, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Jesus, being God, knew when he would die and then resurrect. We, however, don't know because we're not God. Uh, because of this, we must live wisely, not wasting our days on ourselves. Psalm 92, and I love this verse, says this, so teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. And remembering that our days are limited, the psalmist says this knowledge should lead us to wise living. Uh, one of my professors from seminary has a very unique decoration in his house that reminds him just of this principle. Uh, in his magnificent library filled with books upon books, he has um, a, a unique object on his desk uh, which sits there when he studies. It's a human skull, but no worries, it's fake. <laughs> but he has set it next to his work to be reminded that his time to serve is limited. Jesus knew his time with the disciples was ending. He knew he would physically die the next day. Uh, and we don't know when this time for us will come. And so we must live wisely. While I was studying Jesus's last words to his disciples, I was overcome with the amount of love he shows his disciples at this dinner. Everything he did came from a motive of love. Uh, there are a lot of things that can motivate us to do something. Uh, Guilt can move me to be nicer. Shame can move me to be more punctual. 
uh, a desire to win the approval of men can push me to suffocating perfection. But these motivations not only don't feel great, but they fizzle out. And they're not as strong as the motive of love. I can remember a season of life when uh, working at Pine Cove that I would wake up early every morning so exhausted that there was literally nothing that could get me out of bed except for one thing. Our program director would tell our team every day, different day, same gospel. Different day, same gospel. And knowing uh, that there were families who needed Christ's love that day, Christ's love for me and my love for him was the only thing that was strong enough to move my tired body out of bed, to go be a counselor to kids and their families. His love is often the only motivation that will get me to take the next right step. Something else happened uh, next to dinner that left the 12 looking at each other in shock. Fulfilling Psalm 41.9, look at what Jesus says in verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples searched each other's faces for any sign of proof. No face showed admission of guilt. Only confusion and panic could be seen in their eyes. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? In Matthew and Mark's Gospels uh, accounts of this night, the disciples ask Jesus one by one, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Judas even asked the Lord this, and I'm not really sure why. Perhaps it was to kind of throw the others off. Um, but Jesus responds to Judas that, yes, it is he. And yet when Judas leaves to betray Jesus, no one suspects Judas. While we know that John called the beloved or the one whom Jesus loved is on the right side of Jesus, it's likely that Judas is on the left for a couple reasons. Uh, no one put together Jesus's answer to Judas's question of, is it I, Lord? Likely only John who reclined on Jesus's right might have understood Judas was the betrayer. And second, Judas would have had to have been close enough for a reclining Jesus to give him a piece of bread. Look at verse 26 in Jesus's response to John. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. If Judas was on Jesus's left, this position at the table was also considered a place of honor. Judas, or John being on the other side in the place of honor. And to receive bread from the host was another honor. It was a sign of friendship. And even at this meal, Jesus exuded love even to the one he knew would betray him that night. Jesus, fully aware what would come that night, allowed Satan to enter into Judas and then prompted Judas to leave to do what he needed to do, betray him. And so Jesus got up and left with clean feet into the night. Jesus modeled great service. Because he served, we serve, and we can serve with purpose. 
motivated by his abundant love. He demonstrated for us here how we can serve with the end in mind. As the night drew closer to Jesus' arrest with every step Judas, Judas took into the night, Jesus continued to invest his last words to the remaining 11. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's uh, pause here for a second. Why is this commandment new? Uh, this is a question I had when I first read this because it sounds an awful lot like an old commandment from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's new? <laughs> loving others, loving Jesus, who's God. Here's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Jesus, fully God and fully man, had given these privileged 11 the honor of seeing the perfect God's example of agape love. So there's actually three different words uh, in Greek for love. There's one for romantic love, another one for brotherly or friendship love, and then this last one for Christ's selfless love that could be emulated by his followers. This last one's called agape. It's a term that actually wasn't widely used in the first century, so it was perfect for the church to adopt to describe Christ's love and subsequently the church's love. Chuck Swindoll says that agape is the kind that seeks the highest, greatest good of another. So this dinner isn't over yet, and poor Peter is about to sustain another shock. After Jesus tells the 11 of this type of love, they're to show one another. Peter focuses on Jesus' statement that they won't be able to follow him where he's going. And with that in mind, Peter asks in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And in response, Peter genuinely declares in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But Peter had no idea what would happen that night. And Peter had promised the greatest act of agape and Jesus answers his bold statement in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Uh, the text doesn't say anything of Peter's response, but chapter 14, verse one, shares with us the mood around the table. And as we think of Peter's statement and we know that he does in fact strongly deny Jesus, that very night after dinner, it's easy for us to respond to Peter's confident words with judgment. Um, but I think that there are many of us who at this moment would genuinely tell Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And we would mean it. And I believe Peter did as well. I think the harder challenge for the church in the States right now is not the chance to die for the sake of Christ's name. It's the choice to choose daily to die for him by dying to self. It's the chance to choose the greater honor for another. The Apostle Paul, whose life was radically changed by the resurrected Christ, 
Uh, he says this in Romans 12:1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifice sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? In Luke 9:23 and verse 25, after Peter's spot-on confession of who Jesus is and Jesus' prediction of his own betrayal, death, and resurrection, Jesus says this, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits himself? Uh, if I can't die daily and saying no to laziness to get out of bed on time and pausing my evening to talk to the Lord in prayer or even stopping my busy afternoon schedule to meet a need that's put before me, if I can't do these things, what makes me think I can say, I'd give my life for you, Lord? A question I must ask myself is, why wait to die for the Lord when the opportunity for, to live for Him daily is right before me? Let's look at the choices of today as moments to show his way of love, agape love. Agape love isn't just a feeling, it's an action. And to die daily for the one who loved to the end, is there a better life? We can live no better life than one spent in agape. We love because he first loved us. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't end the dinner with the prediction of Peter's denial Take heart, breathe, there are comforting words ahead. So look at chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, and these words make sense, considering the prediction of the betrayal that's going to happen, Peter's denial, and the fact that it's just sinking in that he's going to leave his disciples. Um, this was a Passover meal like none other that the disciples had experienced. But look what he says in 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then look at verse four. And you know the way to where I'm going. The disciples are still a little confused. They were afraid of what was coming and they couldn't fully wrap their minds around what Jesus was saying. So Jesus com comforts them with the promise of reunion. He's not departing from them forever. The coming back here refers to the rapture, not Jesus's resurrection. And I uh, also just wanted to note that I think we often focus on the many rooms part in this passage, but really Jesus is emphasizing his presence uh, with the disciples. The rest of the dinner uh, continued to be a bit confusing for the disciples, and uh, even though there was more great news to come. So stick with me so that Jesus' answers to Thomas and Philip's questions will make sense. First, let's look at Thomas's question in verse five. Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Because Jesus had said in verse four, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas doesn't. So thank you, Thomas, for asking that question because from that question, we get a beautiful answer. Here's Jesus's answer. I'm the way. And then he adds on the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Uh, one scholar says beautifully that Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. 
Earlier in the dinner, Jesus had told them that they couldn't follow him. Jesus knew that the cross he would be nailed to and the separation from the Father that he would experience was only for him. However, when Jesus says, I am the way, it's his death and resurrection that then opened the way for them to be with him later. Only Christ could go his way in order that he might become the way for anyone who would believe in him. Uh, now, I want to address something you might be thinking, and it's certainly something you've heard. How can Jesus be the only way to God? That seems so prideful and narrow-minded of Christians to say. And I'm sure y'all have heard that before, and perhaps you're the one asking it. It's a great question, and if you haven't asked it before, it's time you do. Uh, because if there's another way to God, Christianity is uncomfortable and an inconvenient lifestyle to genuinely live. But let me answer it by asking you a question first. What would you say the root problem of the world is? Is it, um, there's certainly a lot of problems, but what do they all stem from? Is it health issues, past or present wars, climate change, distribution of wealth, is it that we lack education? Um, the answer is that people choose to live their own way. Yes, there's certainly good people and they do great things, but is anyone perfect? Uh, I think we could all agree that no one's perfect. And there, right there, that's the problem with the world. And so how do we fix this issue of imperfection? Well, we can't. Uh, the world and the universe were perfect at the beginning because that's how they were created. And God says in Genesis 1 and 2 that what he made was good. And it wasn't until the first humans chose to go their own way that the earth broke. And before you go blaming them, it wasn't just Adam and Eve who chose their own way. From the beginning of history, each person has selfishly put his or herself first at some point. To be accepted by God, you must be perfect. And there's the dilemma, because if humanity can't cure the problem of sin, only the Creator can. Uh, just as you wouldn't want your doctor to uh, follow a prognosis or diagnosis of stage for cancer with choose whatever feels right, whatever cure um, you want to do, and that, that'll work. So we can't say that there are multiple ways that we fix our problem and that always lead to God. All other religions besides Christianity rely somewhat on your good works to gain favor with a God. But no matter how much good someone does, there's still bad in them, bad things that they've done. Christ came to cure the bad, to remove sin permanently. And the one thing we only have to do is believe his truth. One commentator notes that obedience is not, however, the condition of God's love for humans, but the proof of the realization of his love and of their love for him. That's why believers do good after they accepted Christ. It's not to gain favor, but it's to show gratitude and love for the one who gave all. And if any of this leads to more questions, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask. Um, there probably will be more questions. It's something good to wrestle with. Um, but I wanted to move on to the dinner now. If Look back at verse 7. Jesus states, If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From on you do now know him and have seen him. Next disciple speaks up. Philip asks in verse 8, Lord shows the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus says to him, uh, I've been with you so long, and still you don't know me, Philip. 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus goes on to explain to the 11 that he's unified with the Father. And because of this claim that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, they understood he was claiming to be God. Jesus did his ministry, his miracles, and his teachings under the Father's authority, and he spoke of this in public. Before we see the surprise that Jesus mentions next, I want us to look at verses 13 and 14. As Jesus preps the disciples to do greater works and preach to many more people, he says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, This is what Jesus is not saying. I wish I had a billion dollars in Jesus' name. God is not a genie at our command. He will not always do what we ask because his number one priority is his glory, not ours. And this is not selfish of him. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Acknowledge that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. What Jesus is saying is that when we pray according to his will, he will carry out his will. This prayer is not a selfish one on our end. It's a prayer that the Father would answer to glorify the Son. Chuck Swindoll helps explain these verses. Jesus declared that supplications offered in the continuation of the Son's ministry will be answered as if he had spoken the prayer himself. To speak or act in someone's name is to act on his behalf or in pursuit of his interests. In other words, God will not grant requests that contradict his own nature or oppose his plan. John ends his account of the dinner with Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is unified, unified with Jesus and the Father in what is the Trinity. He describes the Spirit with characteristics that would cheer their heavy hearts. Read verse 15 with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What a comforting promise. When he says that he will come to them, this could mean a couple things. It could either mean appearing to them after his resurrection or the sending of a spirit, or it could actually mean both because both happened. Uh, Jesus promises the spirit to be with them forever after Jesus' return to the Father. And this is huge. Uh, previously, the Holy Spirit would usually come and go in someone's life to do, the fa- to do the work that the Father had laid out. But to stay forever, this was different, and this was comforting, and this was extreme love that Jesus would give his own spirit. The next words Jesus says feel kind of like a tongue twister as you read them, so <laughs> pay attention and stick with me. Uh, verse 19, Yet in a little while... The world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I'm in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, uh, not Judas Iscariot, there's another disciple (laughs) named Judas, I was a little confused about what Jesus has said, so he asked in verse 22, 
Lord, how is it that you manifest, that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus responds, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. As Jesus speaks of the disciples loving him, it's so closely related to intimately knowing him and the father. I love that as Jesus continues to talk about them showing their love through obedience, that he called the spirit the helper and the one who will remind them of Jesus's words. When Jesus would leave them later and ascend into heaven to the father, the disciples would not be alone to love and to obey without help. I love the names that uh, Jesus calls the spirit. Uh, Verse 16, the helper. Verse 17, spirit of truth. Uh, Jesus, just as Jesus taught them truth, so the Spirit would remind them of that truth. Uh, Skip ahead a little bit to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Jesus' words to his beloved friends are full of comfort and deep love. Jesus is about to experience betrayal by a friend, rejection and denial from another, all his disciples fleeing when he needed them most, an exhausting night of legal and unjust trials, brutal torture by Romans who knew how to inflict pain, and separation from his father during crucifixion. And he stays in this room with all the friends who would desert him. And he says this in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How kind, how loving to promise them real peace in the presence of the Spirit. He even tells them this in verse 29. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. He wants them to understand the fullness of his love. And when his words showed themselves later to be true, their faith was made stronger. Jesus doesn't ask his followers to do anything he hasn't already done in service and love. Uh, Even in verse 31, he says that he himself obeys out of love. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. And he is referring to Satan here. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that The world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. As obedient and genuine love for his own motivates Jesus to rise at the beginning of chapter 13 to serve, so his love for the Father moves him to rise at the end of chapter 14, moving closer to the greatest act of service and love, which would take place um, on the day of his death that we now call Good Friday. Because Jesus opened the way, we can follow Christ in service and in agape. Uh, I want to return to the question that we asked prospective seminary students in their interview. What must you do in the next five to 10 years? But I want to rephrase it a little bit for you. What must you do before Jesus returns? Think about that for a minute. The, The gospel requires urgent living, not crazy frantic living, but days infused with purpose Uh, If you woke up today and you did because you're listening, uh, God wants you alive for some reason. He wants you alive to know him, 
to accept his greatest act of love, the gift of his son. And he wants you to show the agape love that you've been given to others through the selfless service he demonstrated. Why wait to give your day to the one who gave his all? Christ has provided us this night at this dinner with a clear example of loving service, picture perfect agape love. And because he made the way to the Father, we can choose to live motivated by his love until he returns or calls us home. Uh, as I was studying this passage, these lyrics ran through my head again and again. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Uh, just a couple weeks ago during Thursday, uh, Women in the Word actually, I received the news that my granny was dying in the, in, in the hospital. Um, my mom, dad, and sister and I each drove separately due to our crazy schedules. Um, but Sunday afternoon, three of us sat with granny in the hospital room. Her breathing wasn't great, but she was able to manage to get uh, a sentence out with every breath. And nearing the end of our visit, my dad pulled out his phone and he began to read scripture to her. Uh, and as he began to read, Granny and her weak voice followed out loud from memory. And he read this, There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 comforted my granny because she has believed in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And to those of you listening who aren't really sure if you've believed in the way, the truth, and the life, I have good news for you. Jesus has already done the hard work of making the way by becoming sin for you. You need only believe that he took all our sin and placed it on himself as the final sacrifice. That's the beauty of the gospel. God accepts you based on the perfection of his son. Your good works won't get you to him, no matter how much you do. Uh, as we'll continue reading in John's gospel, Jesus dies Passover weekend as the perfect lamb of God that John the Baptist spoke of in chapter one. But if you keep reading, he doesn't stay dead. And Romans 10, nine says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. It's because of his love, his creation, he came. It's because of his love, he showed his disciples and us how to serve. It's out of his love, he chose to love his own to the end. With his example of love and the promise of his presence, he is how we live with the end in mind. He is how we live with the end in mind. As we consider our mortality and the fact that our life does have an end, may that motivate us to live with urgency. As I was thinking about this message, this quote came to mind. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. This was said by Jim Elliott, uh, a Wheaton grad who lived life to the fullest and feeling called to be a missionary to the unreached, pursued that dream until it became a reality with the Aka people. The Akas were known for their violence towards one another and to outsiders. And yet Jim and his wife and a few other families uprooted their lives in the States with the hope of bringing the gospel to this people group. 
In September of 1955, the missionaries began dropping gifts from their plane uh, to give to the Aka people, and the Aka people accepted the gifts. After a couple months of doing this, Jim and four of the other guys decided to land the plane and make camp. Uh, but on January 8th of 1956, these men were approached by the Akas and speared to death. The world came to know of their deaths and see their devotion to Christ marked by their love. Their lives and their deaths demonstrated the agape love that the Lord had showed them. Later in the Last Supper, the Lord told his disciples that there's no greater love than the one who lays down his life for his friends. And those five missionaries gave everything and they saw little fruit of their efforts at that point. But what's astonishing to me is that Elizabeth, Jim's wife, not only forgave the Aka people for killing her husband, but she moved in with them and she lived with them. And many came to know the Lord because of that. Um, I, their story just inspires me so much. And uh, Jim was 28 years old when he died. I knew that he was young, but I didn't know his exact age until I looked it up. And his age hit me harder because I'm 28. And his life, Elizabeth's life, his wife and our Lord, um, our Lord was even in his early 30s. They were young when they gave their life, but they gave their all. And it moves me to consider how I spend my days, to live each day as if it was the last day the Lord was coming back, to live each day as this might be the last daylight I see. Let us live to the hilt, live to the uttermost, every situation, every day, every 2020 and 21 that the Lord gives us. This might be our last day, it might be yours, uh, we don't know what the rest of 2021 holds, but we do know that Jesus will come back. What better way to end our time together than by thanking him for all he's done? So would y'all pray with me? Father Jesus and Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us the way to you. Thank you for loving us so well. Your word says in Psalm 90:12, so teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. And with the wisdom you give us, we know that we have the helper who will aid us to make the most of every opportunity. Thank you for the grace that you show us and thank you for the words you left your disciples that encourage us even today. We look forward to seeing you face to face one day. Until then, ask for your help that you would help us keep you at the forefront of our minds. In your name, I ask this. Amen.